This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today on the pod, we have our long-promised, well, two-week promised interview with Mark Altman coming up. Uh, but first, we're going to go through the news before we get to that part. So we have to start with something that is very near and dear to Tony's heart that he's been <laughs> clamoring for, complaining about the lack of, and extolling the virtues of. Tony, take it away. So finally, Paramount Plus, the home of Star Trek Universe, has added a watch list. A, a basic function that every streaming service should have. But of course, I have issues because yeah. even though they even though they <laughs> finally, finally did it. They didn't do enough, did they? Well, first of all, you could only add 50 things to your watch list. Like, why? How many do you add when you make a watch list? I'm just saying, you know, it, t- it, it took you this long. Why bother with putting... The thing that's more annoying is that it's only available to view via one of those strips. So, you know, when you log in, there's all the strips like what do you see recently and, you know, what's trending. And now there's a strip called my list, but you can't go to a page that's just your list on either your TV or your phone. And like everyone else does that, you know, Amazon. So it's like Netflix. a long strip that you just have to keep clicking to sort through. Yeah. You I have to keep swiping and swiping and swiping. The thing I like about Paramount Plus is they're adding a lot of good content. They've done a lot of good stuff on the back end to make sure it doesn't fall apart whenever they have an NFL game. But they've let this third thing fall by the wayside, which is developing the app. And they've just got to make it better. And you know, I'm glad that they're working on it, but it's just not there yet. Yeah, I think I think sometimes they forget how important that interface is. It's really important. It's, you know, they're more focused on the fact that by the end of the summer, they're going to have 2,500 movies, which is great. Just don't forget the interface, you know, don't just focus on content. Because obviously the content scale is really important for streaming services now. And we got another sign of that uh, this week when the Wall Street Journal writes an article about the CEO of Comcast saying that he's looking into things, improve things for Comcast because things for their Peacock service has like, I forget, 10 million subscribers, something like that. It's not enough for them. Comcast is a huge company, by the way. Like, you know, they're uh, 10 times the size of Viacom, CBS, you know, and they want a bigger slice of the pie. And, you know, one sentence in this article says they're, you know, considering uh, merging or or acquiring Viacom, CBS. And they're also looking at Roku, but they may not do either. But that alone, you know, one sentence in an article of Wall Street Journal sent all three stocks shooting up, which shows that the marketplace and Wall Street are looking at all of these companies saying, get bigger. You know, and we saw this recently with Amazon buying uh, MGM and AT&T uh, bringing in Discovery to HBO Max and to Warner Media. So the Comcast merger, I think, will not happen because it's just regulatory nightmare. But something's going to happen in the next year or so, I think, with Viacom, CBS. And that could impact Star Trek because it's a corporate shakeup and it's going to be a bigger entity. And you know, the question is, where will Star Trek fit into that? So, And we've seen changes. You know, we've seen like with movie studios going, oh, we're, we are going to make Star Trek movies. We're not going to make Star Trek movies. We're not going to make your Star Trek movie. So um, to Noah Holly, So <laughs> there are a lot of uncertainties. Speaking of which, the last time we did one of these business updates, we talked about Julie McNamara leaving Paramount Plus. She she was 
the person who worked with Alex Kurtzman from the beginning to bring Discovery on and then to help develop four more shows, which are now currently in production. Now, there's been a major restructure within Viacom CBS to focus the company even more on streaming. Paramount Plus is the future of the company, even though it's not currently the biggest revenue generator. They are restructuring the entire giant corporation around streaming and around Paramount Plus. They've, you know, moved executives around. There's a new guy who's the head of Showtime is now in charge of all scripted programming for Paramount Plus. Um, and he's now in charge of Star Trek, essentially. That's not David Nevins, is it? Yeah, it is. So he's, I think he's been a Star Trek advocate for a while, though. Yeah, and he's a big fan of quality programming because he's been at Showtime. I think this is a good thing. And it's good that they're changing the way that the company is focused on streaming. The thing that we still don't have is a Star Trek czar who's in charge of movies <laughs> and TV. You know, there's no hub because this is, you know, we still want a Star Trek hub in Paramount Plus that has movies, the TV, the documentaries. There's no person either within Viacom CBS, apparently, that's, you know, the Kevin Feige of Star Trek. And right. we kind of, I think the franchise needs that. And, you know, it's not Alex Kurtzman. He's not in charge of the movies. Um, he's just in charge of the TV stuff. And he talks about how the line between movies and TV is faded and that you can't consider these things siloed anymore. But he's he's still not, as far as I know, doesn't really have a say on greenlighting Star Trek. Well, he can't greenlight a TV show either. But no. <laughs> developing Star Trek movies. That's still essentially JJ and um, people in Paramount. So that's it for the business side. We're not saying, you know, everything that's coming is still coming. You know, no one's going to stop Strange New Worlds. But things are changing for what phase two is. You know, you know, Marvel has all these phases. And I don't, you know, they've never said this at, you know, uh, CBS and Viacom. But there's going to be a phase two of Star Trek. And I think it's going to try to integrate the movies more. I think it's going to, you know, look at what they do on the television side and, there's a lot of moving parts now. There's new people. Everyone involved in the corporate hierarchy is different now. And there's possibly new players involved. And that could impact how they approach the next phase of Star Trek for the next decade. And so just strap in and get ready for things to change. <laughs> we, we just don't know what that change is. What's next? A uh, little Alex Kurtzman had some things to say about Star Trek. It's the Pod Directive, the official Star Trek podcast. Because of the nature of that podcast, they don't try to make it a newsy thing. And this was probably recorded earlier in the year, you know, so you didn't announce like, and my next TV show is. This right. is more phil philosophical. It had me thinking about, well, what do I think about what Star Trek is and how would I define it? It made me sort of ask myself all those same questions that he was answering. So it's whether you agree with what he says or not, it's food for thought, I think. You and I have talked about this a lot, about how Kurtzman and Michelle Paradise and all those people often say, they always say the right things. So, you know, when you read everything he has to say about Star Trek, it's all the right things. About The reason it's different is because of the optimism it shows. It feels like it's really relevant today, more relevant even than it was in the 60s. But the they... Focus on Right. Sorry to interrupt, but it's exactly what you said, like the optimism being let's I, I want to start with that. 
because we all talk about how the optimism is important. And I always, to me, Starfleet from the time I was a little kid represented this optimistic future. They say optimism, but I would say Picard isn't an optimistic show. I would say that Discovery became optimistic in its third season. Um, so these are exactly what you're saying. We hear the right words. We don't always see it. Well, they would argue that they create these arcs where the optimism shows up at the end, but you know, it's like, well, you know, but that's not what optimism is just to have like, it turned out. Okay. is an optimism. And I really, it's funny. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately in my own nerdy moments, which is what Starfleet meant to me as a kid and why I don't like seeing corrupt Starfleet or destroyed Starfleet. Like to me, that was the anchor. I loved the characters, but the anchor was always a better future with with the right people in charge who aren't jerks, who aren't power hungry, who are looking for the betterment of all beings, right? I mean, that's pretty lofty stuff. But as a little kid, that was colossal because it was obvious that real life governments weren't like that. And as an adult, it still is. I mean, that's why I love all these shows, you know, the older ones. And so the new ones, which I enjoy them all, but I feel like they think it's fun. And and honestly, to be fair, I think the old school, the 90s writers also would have liked to have played with darker stuff. And in a way, I'm glad that they didn't get to. Because that optimism to me is like, this is a good thing. And we're going to have conflicts and we're going to have enemies and we're going to have problems. But we're always aiming for that higher, better place. I think they're getting better at that. You know, I'm a little worried and we're going to get more into this a little later uh, about Picard season two, because it, I have a feeling it's another one of those things where it's going to get dark fast and then, you know, everything will be okay in the end. Right. Although in this case, we're assuming it's some kind of alternate timeline at least. And it's not that I don't like dark tones. There are wonderful, very dark episodes of Star Trek across the franchise that are great. So it's not avoiding darkness, but it's sort of, it's, there's, I wouldn't even say optimism. I would say idealism. How about that? Picard is the one that, that tests these waters the most. I think the key for Picard season two will be that Jean-Luc Picard needs to be that shining beacon of optimism and hope and idealism throughout. Season one, he was carrying guilt and doubt and he wasn't that beacon that we needed. So even if things are dark in season two, as long as he's there to be holding up the ideals of Starfleet and the Federation, which are the ideals of Star Trek, then I think it's okay no matter how dark it gets. You know, no matter how many eyeballs they scoop out, um, as long as he's there to say it's going to get better, I'll be okay with that. You know what I mean? Well, that is why we've always counted on Picard. He is... You know, the thing you can hold on to in dark times. I I hope we see some of that from the other main characters as well, that no matter what they've been thrust into, that they are still their good best selves that we love. He talks about this in the variety pack. He describes it as different color crayons in the same box, which I like that analogy with a common theme. But he also makes the point that Star Trek can't just be made for the fans because they're going to run out of fans because fans are literally going to die, which is true. And uh, but this is the constant struggle. I think Discovery, I think, has done a very good job of bringing in a lot of people. 
Prodigy is geared entirely for that. I'm hoping that Strange New Worlds, I mean, it has this kind of funny thing where it has to do where it has to do everything. It needs to be entirely fan service and yet not fan service. Do you know what I mean? I I don't know if you know know what I mean. mean. So it needs to be, it needs to satisfy the old school fans who are saying we just want good old optimistic episodic star trek but it can't be a greatest hits band we don't want that we want something like star trek but not something that's copying star trek i don't know it's hard to say we're gonna get on a ship we're gonna go to a planet we're gonna have a problem on the planet we're gonna solve the problem we're gonna get back on the ship he did kind of smash my hopes of future short treks it sounds like those are you know, on indefinite hold or just in the past at this point, because it basically solved a problem that they don't have anymore. So they're not looking to make more. And then he did also bring up my, my personal dream of the musical episode saying, if we had short tricks, that would be perfect. Um, And I still want to see a musical episode. I just do. He brought up what I think everyone kind of remembers, which is the Buffy, the vampire slayer episode once more with feeling to say, that's how you do it. Right. But I think it's kind of, I mean, I think you could do it out outside of short treks, but maybe not a whole episode. But let's say Discovery pulls up to some planet and everyone sings. You know, that's how they talk. You have to sing to communicate with these people. And so, you know, they send down Stamets and a couple others and they break into song. They have auditions to see who should go who should be sent down? I mean, for me, so I wasn't, I never, I'm, I hate to say this. I've never watched Buffy. I try, I mean, I tried watching Buffy and it didn't connect with me, so I didn't watch it. My gold standard for the musical episode is the Supergirl Flash crossover, which to me was phenomenal. Um, and they concocted a story where one of the wacky bad guys that they have on those shows, which was played by the delightful Darren Chris. Um, created a scenario where you have to sing and go through this musical to get out of it or you'll die. So you can't be, it can't be quite as ridiculous for Star Trek, but I like your planet of the singing people idea and I fully endorse it. Let's talk about Jason Isaac. Every few months, Jason Isaac is promoting something and people ask him, oh, you know, are you ever going to go back to Harry Potter or Star Trek or Star Wars? For the rest of his life, this is how all of his interviews are going to go. So what's funny is he basically kind of says, ah, you know, maybe it depends on the script, which is kind of generic actor talk, right? But then he brings up Star Trek. (laughs) So it's obvious that I just think he really loved being on Star Trek and he really wants to do it again um, because he brought it up and he he said that there's a clamor. I'm clamoring for Prime Lorca for sure. It just makes sense. It's a story we didn't get to see. And frankly, I'm still a little pissed off about that mirror universe episode he did not show up in of discovery this season after they spent the whole part one going lorca 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 like marcia 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 and then he never showed up i think there's definitely been talk about bringing him back in some form a miniseries his own show a guest spot i mean part of it now too is that it because of discovery's leap into the future that is no longer the most sensible place for him to show up and the place that makes the most sense is actually strange new worlds you know that's the thing of like would he do it like would he do an episode i think it'd be great but you know is that enough for him i think he would if it was meaty and if he thought that it was a testing uh, testing the waters for something bigger yeah they would certainly have to tease him with that 
I think if it was a good story and he got to do something meaty and fun and it was a bit of a testing run, that would be enough for him. So let's talk a little bit about Picard and our chatty friend, (laughs) John Delancey. I think the last time we talked about this, he had mentioned that he was about to shoot something with Brent Spiner. He kind of dropped once he used the word data. We're not sure if he meant data or not. Um, in his latest updates on Cameo, it's a lot of the same things, but now he's shot with Brent. So he's ta- he's talked a lot about it, just saying, you know, how great it was. And he has clarified that Frakes is just directing, not, you know, so he's shot with Frakes and with Brent Patrick. It's unclear if these been separate scenes or the same, or they were all together in the same scene. What do you sense? Yeah, no, he's not being super specific in a way that we can pin anything down like i don't know if he's talking about the same you know like he does all these different cameos so is he talking about the same thing that he just did is he talking about multiple things that he just did um what i want to hear is that he has scenes with the other characters um which i'm hoping to hear but he knows that i guess when he's doing cameos that the fans just want to hear were you with patrick were you with brent were you with jonathan free he had mentioned that he was going to be with the other characters you know but i think that maybe that's not a big thing i think it's all you know we've talked about this before it's yeah. him and patrick in one in one of his cameos he talked about a single scene with brent so maybe there's really only one scene with brent I like how he says with Jonathan Frakes, he makes shooting a party <laughs> and he, he he talks about how Jonathan Frakes is a joy and how it's like old home week when they're all together because and, and, it is like the 90s all over again. Yeah. And they've all known each other such a long time. And I mean, I've briefly worked with Jonathan Frakes and he really is just the most joyful person. He just will burst out into song. Um, and one of our someone on our team started singing with him and it turned into this amazing duet that kind of brought everybody to a halt. Um, but he is he is quite joyful to work with. And all those guys have such a great history and comfort with each other. You know, when he talks about what they're doing, he seems really optimistic about the work you know, and the quality of the work. So, again, the optimism and the excitement that he shows is coming through that it makes me more excited about season two. He did tell a story, an old story, on one of those cameos that I found interesting because I had not heard it before, um, about doing his, about doing the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And he said that when he first was sort of thinking about the character and figuring out how to do it, he said Patrick Stewart and Corey Allen, who was the director, came to his house, they all sat in the backyard, and they talked through the lines, banged them out, he said. Um, and he said that Corey, the director, kept saying to him, like, he's he's evil and he's a villain. And whenever sort of Delancey tried to play it up and get more playful with it. And so, and he thought, and Delancey was like, no, 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 it's good to smile and be a villain because he didn't want to be a cartoon. But he said that Corey Allen sort of pressed most of that out of me. And then when he got, but when he came back as Q again, he got to bring more humor in. So that's sort of an interesting take This is a case where the actor had the right idea, because I think when we think of Q and why I think Q worked is because there's an impishness, a wink. And yet none of that was really when you think about Encounter at Farpoint, that really wasn't there. He was definitely very serious and he Mm -hmm. was the, the bad guy. But Q really works because he isn't just a bad guy. I mean, he's an adversary 
to Picard, but also a friend in a weird way. And I, I think that that's why he's going to work in season two of Picard, because I don't think Q caused the problems. I think Q's the solution, not the problem. Although he's also, you know, but dealing with him is always difficult, of course. Um, right. But that nuance of his, I mean, it's not even a nuance. It's very broad. So that aspect of his character brings an edge to all of his scenes because he's unpredictable because he could go. Sometimes he's very dismissive of things that humans think are important. Sometimes he's fascinated by things. So I think that unpredictability charges those scenes with some electricity. Since we're on the subject of Picard, you know, we talked about the trailer last week and uh, after the podcast, we put up a trailer analysis, which is worth checking out on the site. Cause we, Notice some things we didn't even mention in last week's podcast. Matt and I have been talking a lot about this. Matt Wright is one of the editors of the site. You're trying to figure out what's going on. The scene that was kind of getting to me that I made it hard to figure out what was going on is there's a scene where Picard is talking to kind of like a summit. Picard's wearing an admiral's uniform. Rafi is there. At first we were thinking this must be an alternate past where Picard didn't resign from Starfleet. But it was hard to figure out how that fit with the other alternate, which is these, you know, everyone's wearing black fascistic things with an entirely different Starfleet badge. Now we're thinking that isn't in the past. We think it's actually after season one. It's like the only part of the trailer that's in the prime timeline and it's after. So we're now thinking the new theory is that when they come back from season one, that because Starfleet did the right thing at the end of season one, right? Where Starfleet and Jonathan mm -hmm. Frakes, um, that both Picard and Rafi rejoined Starfleet. You know, they have some kind of summit to maybe talk about what happened on Capellius. And that's kind of where season two starts. Then something happens. And that's where we see the rest of the trailer, where everyone suddenly finds themselves in this other alternate 2399 right so picard's mm -hmm. back at his house but he can't you know find laris why is laris not there because they're in an alternate timeline and the romulan refugee crisis never happened and so why would she be there right, right. and uh, everyone is in a different place then the third piece of this we're thinking is we talked a little bit about this on the pod last week but the more I think about this, the more I think this is the key, which is the poster and Los Angeles and how it's contemporary. Because if you look at Star Trek history or what's supposed to be Star Trek history, we are very close to where Star Trek history says World War Three is supposed to happen. It, it starts in the year 2026, according to Star Trek history. Right. And this show is going to come out in 2022. <laughs> So Picard and everyone finds themselves, you know, in the fascistic future, right? Something's happened. Very yesterday's enterprise, right? Except that they know, so they don't need Guinan to tell them they're in the wrong timeline. Then Q shows up. So that I think a lot of people think Q caused it. I don't, I didn't think that. You know, which is the tapestry model. I think this is more like all good things. Q shows up, but he's not the one who made it happen. And in fact, he's the one who's kind of helping Picard figure it out. And I think the key to this is, I think they're sent back to 2025, a year before World War III started, because that's the pivot point 
they've got to go back and set time right and possibly even make sure that World War Three happens, ironically. There you know, there was no World War Three, which means there, you know, was no Zephyrin Cochran making the warp flight in the post World War Three world, which means there was no first contact with the Vulcans at that point. So the idea is maybe in this world, Starfleet grew out of Space Force, the military, not out of a civilian space agency. And let's go back to Encounter at Farpoint. When you think of Q, what is the quintessential Q? Judge Q. When is when is that set? Oh. W- World War Three. Right. So, and he actually played a, one of his personas was a World War Three soldier in one of his. Yeah, I remember that. You know, so I think that World War Three is the thing that everything revolves around. And which is why they're coming back to contemporary times right before World War Three. So anyway, so that's 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 what we've got. What do you think? I think the more I think about it, the more sense it makes to me because of also I'm thinking about when they were writing it and things that were going on in the world at the time. So we had um, different leadership in this country. We had this unveiling, this whole Space Force business <laughs> that that did raise a lot of questions that did have people talking about military and space. Um, and because that is the beauty, again, it goes back to what I was saying when we were talking about Alex Kurtzman, which is to me, Starfleet is part of wh- what's important about Starfleet is its idealism. And to me, its non-militariness has always been a huge thing. So it seems like this would be something the writers were all thinking about. And we know Patrick Stewart has talked about how it has relevance to what's going on. And those interviews were given a while ago. I think it's a pretty good theory. And I was initially dismissive of the idea that World War Three, because I've seen some buzz about this, um, was going to be the thing because it seemed so abstract and non-Picard focused. And I feel like that show is very focused on him and, and his influence on everything. But I think it's a good theory. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys put together about it. I mean, you know, Starfleet is, is about exploration and about optimism. And Picard is the ultimate example of that. And so I think that is the thing that is that stream of optimism we talked about is what if he finds himself in a world where Starfleet has a totally different perspective and is more, it's not a mirror universe so that people aren't. No, but it is. I mean, look at yesterday's enterprise, right? So that was, they were thrust into, you know, some event that needed to happen, didn't happen. And it changed things. And for Picard, even though he was, you know, captain of this ship in a time of war, it wasn't hard for Guinan to convince him. And I think that that doesn't just speak to the trying to be efficient in the script and get to the next cool part. I think it has to do with who he is as a person, that it made sense to him that, that it didn't seem right. This is essentially a a season-long version of City on the Edge of Forever where they need to go back and fix something, mm-hmm. essentially to make World War II happen, that episode. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a poetry, but the problem is that now we think of multiple timelines. And so if you found yourself in a fascistic timeline, your goal wouldn't be to fix that timeline. It would be to just get back to yours. Like, right. you know, let, let these people have their fascistic timeline, you know, good luck. 
and uh, we're just going to leave. We're going to go back to our timeline and you don't need to go back and fix it. You know, you don't need to do the Edith, you know, push Edith Keeler in front of a car to make World War Three happen. Because, well, he didn't push you know. her. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be fair. He didn't push her. He had to stop. But you know what I mean? Boy. I do. I, I mean, honestly, to me, the biggest danger in all of this is that we've done this so many times in different Star Treks is to keep it fresh and do something different. Right. I mean, uh, one of, yeah, that is the problem is my theory is essentially that this is a mashup of City on the Edge of Forever with all good things and a little yesterday's Enterprise, throw them into a blender and uh, out comes season two of Picard. I wish I had the time to make that the header image for our podcast <laughs> on the page, but I do not. But putting all those things in a blender and then having Picard emerge, just imagine that visually in your mind. A little sad news for Star Trek fans we wanted to do next, which is uh, Joanne Linville, who played the Romulan commander in the classic original series episode, The Enterprise Incident, uh, died this this week. Yep. I mean, she was 93, you know, so she had a very long, fulfilling life for sure. She did. And when I was reading about her, I saw she was in um, the uh, A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand, which I don't remember her from. And now I'm going to have to find that movie in... I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out, but I'm ready to go watch it again and look for her in it. Um, and there was a fun little tidbit that said that in the Next Generation episode, Face of the Enemy, um, they wanted to have her come back um, and reprise her role as the Romulan commander, but she was not available. I, I've been amazed at the outpouring of love and you know how widely this story was covered around the web. And Mark Ruffalo uh, tweeted about her. I think they worked together or I haven't seen the connection, but she must've been an acting coach at some point because he said that she was the greatest teacher and mentor he ever had. So she impacted a lot of people's lives. So rest in peace, Joanne Linville. There's a quick update. Uh, The Voyager documentary to the journey is gone back into production in Hollywood. They're in the studio this week. They built a set and they're shooting lots of interviews. Yeah, we have some people. I think Erin McDonald posted a picture of her in their studio giving an interview for it. Dave Livingston's been there. He directed a ton of those. Andy Robinson, uh, you know, because he directed a Voyager episode. He did. They were just talking about it on uh, Delta Flyers. Uh, Lisa Klink was one of the writers on the show. So the set's kind of cool. It kind of looks a little bit like a holodeck. You know, they raised a million dollars and now they're spending it. And and they didn't want to do Zoom interviews, which I like. They wanted to get people in person. So they were waiting to that. They expect to be filming into 2022. And then they're hoping to release it in the fall. Because they got a lot of footage at the cruise last year. They're also going to do Destination Star Trek, which is this fall in London. You know, there will be, it won't all be using this set, but they're, you know, they're chugging along. Yeah, I think so too. And they said they're still learning new things that they didn't know. And these guys are scholars of Trek as well. So that's fun. Although they are going to end up with the same problem of what you left behind, where they're going to have too much material. I and know. I just hope, I hope they could figure out a way to get this thing to 90 or so minutes and make it tight and concise. Okay, so speaking of documentaries, that's why we're bringing on our next guest, Mark Altman, who is producing 
a documentary called 1982 Best Geek Year Ever. He's also working on the History Channel Center Seat documentary, and he's wrote the book on Star Trek, literally. The books. He's the co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. Let's bring him on. So I'd like to welcome Mark Altman uh, to the podcast. He is a writer and producer uh, currently working on Pandora and, of course, 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever, the new documentary, amongst some other things. Um, I've known Mark for years. I used to work with him at Geek Magazine, and I'm just always happy to have a nice nerdy chat with Mark. So welcome, Mark. Well, I prefer to think of it as a nice geeky chat, but if you want to make it a nice nerdy chat, we can do that too. <laughs> okay. I love the brand building there. <laughs> I know. I the- feel like now we're going to have arguments over what is geek versus nerd, and now you're just As long as we dissent. don't do the Trekkie versus Trekker nonsense, I'll be fine. No, don't worry. <laughs> Trekkers are people. Okay, I don't want to get into that. Um, I I prefer the term Trek enthusiast, but uh, I haven't quite popularized it yet. But let's start with your new documentary, the 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever. By the way, you know, how did you decide? Because there are so many great geek years that you've lived through. How did you just, you know, have you always said, yes, this is the one? Because there's some other good ones in the 80s, too. Yeah, no, 1982 is the, the, you know, it's not the greatest year for movies ever. It's the greatest geek year ever. I mean, you know, 1939 was probably the greatest year for movies. But you, you have um, – it's a remarkable, remarkable year for film. And for, you know, people who aren't familiar, you know, it's the – you know, obviously Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan came out that year. Although then it was Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, not Star Trek II. Um, you had, you know, Tron. You had Blade Runner, Conan, Poltergeist, um, you know, Cat People, Creepshow, The Thing. Uh, I mean, remarkable. And then you had, you know, you do a deeper dive into stuff like Liquid Sky and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Diner and My Favorite Year. And then there's a really obscure stuff like the awful, awful, um, uh, you know, um, Megaforce with Persis Campana and Barry Bostwick, Cue the Winged Serpent. I mean, and, you know, it's it's just it's just a remarkable, remarkable year, Uh, you know, for for not only, you know, traditional geek stuff like sci-fi and fantasy, but teen exploitation. And, you know, it was also the beginning of sort of um, you, you sort of see gay and trans films sort of starting to happen with Liquid Sky and uh, the making love and, and partners and, um, you know, just a lot of alien knockoffs like Forbidden World and just crazy stuff like Time Rider. I mean, it's, and horror, it was a remarkable year, but you had Cat People and Poltergeist and Creep Show and the, obviously John Carpenter's The Thing. And, you know, what won the Oscar that year? Gandhi. So, you know, it's, it's, it's true, true to form. The Academy really nailed it. Uh, oh, and of course, you know, E.T. was, uh, you know, I, I forget E.T. So um, really a, an amazing year for cinema. It, it's funny because I think, Anthony, you were there about 15 years ago. I did a tribute to 1982 at the American Cinematheque. And um, we showed a bunch of films and had a bunch of guests. So we showed, you know, Star Trek II and we showed E.T. And we showed Poltergeist. that had most of the living cast there. And um, we had Dark Crystal and we had David O'Dell, the screenwriter and Cat People we showed. And we had, I think, Conan and uh, Tron. We had the director and a bunch of the visual effects team. And uh, it was a really remarkable. And I, I always, you know, and, and unfortunately, this was right before the cell phones were a, a really, I think we had the trio, you know, which didn't have like video. Like, I wish I had videotaped it or, or did some kind of archival thing, which I didn't do, which is really annoying. 
And then, you know, about, I guess, 10 years ago, we started doing these panels at Comic-Con, Greatest Geek Year Ever, which back in, uh, you know, 2002, we did 1982, 30th anniversary, Greatest Geek Year Ever. And then that was so successful that every year subsequently, we did 1983, 1984, 1985, and et cetera, until 1989. And then this year for Comic-Con at home, we decided, do we go to 1991 or do we go back to um, 1981? And we made the, the cogent and smart choice to go back to 1981 because once you get into the 90s, you know, movies sort of take a dive. In terms of Star Trek Two, it's interesting because you know after Star Trek the Motion Picture, Paramount you know didn't know what to do obviously, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, but you know they they decided to go lower budget but still do it. But there, you know, with all these movies coming out, it it feels like there must have been something going on in 1980 and 81 in Hollywood where they were just handing out green lights to all these movies. Like, why do you think there was so much genre suddenly at that time, you know, is it just because of star Wars and the empire strikes back that they just started saying, you know, yes to everything. Yeah. That's a really good question. And I would say, you know, one day I'm going to have to see star Trek too. I hear it's really good. And I know a lot of star Trek fans really like it. So I, I, it, it should, should I'll have to check that out one day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> but, uh, oh, so, know, so so you're going to be pedantic, okay? Just no, checking. No, 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 no. But you know the 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 uh, the, the thing is, um, I think you're exactly right. I think it was a combination not only of Star Wars, but then the success of Empire Strikes Back that proved Star Wars wasn't a fluke, and of course Raiders in eight, 1980. Um, that you start to see, you know, up until then, 2001 was kind of the big influence on sci-fi through the 70s, and you had a lot of dystopian. Uh, films like The Omega Man and Logan's Run and stuff throughout the uh, even Rollerball to an extent through the 80s. And then, you know, by the, you know, and, and you still had that even in, in the 80s with the uh, Road Warrior, obviously. Um, but that was a sequel to Mad Max, which was, um, you know, a 70s film. So I, I think what you really do see is, is, is the huge success of these genre films spawning, you know, a bunch of, of, of genre um, and, uh, you know, but more in the shadow of Star Wars than the shadow of 2001. There's sort of like a big paradigm shift because even, you, you know, clearly Star Trek, the motion picture is hugely influenced by 2001, whereas Star Trek two, well, not influenced by Star Wars. It doesn't have the 2001 influence, you know, it, it and, and certainly Star Trek three is influenced by Star Trek. I mean, you know, you, you talk about that dreadful bar scene and stuff. Uh, but, um, I think that, um, you know, that's what's so interesting about 1982. And they're still taking risks because even though you have things that are based on IP, like Star Trek and Swamp Thing and Halloween 3, you, you have a lot of kind of, and Cat People being a remake and Creep Show, which was influenced by the EC Comics and The Thing, which is a remake. You know, Tron, for, for all its faults, is a very unique movie. E.T. is an extremely unique movie. You know, Blade Runner, as much as it's sort of film noir in the future, obviously reinvent cinema in a really interesting way. And of course it's so out there and so different uh, that it, you know, it wasn't successful at the time. It's only in retrospect that, you know, Blade Runner has become this, this classic. So um, you're exactly right. And look at something like dark crystal and what a risk that was. I mean, basically we're going to do an epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings with Muppets for all intents and purposes. (laughs) So, you know, it was a time where there was still a lot of experimentation and risk taking, uh, as opposed to now where everything's, you know, about the analytics. 
maybe it's just my you know thing that I I'm always interested in the business side. But for your documentary, are, will you be having any chance with you know executives at Fox and Paramount and stuff that you know the people who were kind of making these decisions as opposed to just the people who made the movies? Oh, absolutely. To me, I mean, the underpinnings and, and why those decisions are made and the business decisions are, are, are almost, you know, far more interesting. You know, you kind of need to talk to the actors and the above the line people, you know, so people see it. But it's like, you know, you you, you want to give them their vegetables, too, which is the, you know, the executives. And so the doing a deep dive, which is something we really do a lot of on the podcast, which is the reason I still do the podcast in Glorious Trexperts, because we brought on somebody like Tom Perry, who is the executive on, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture. Or, you know, last week we did, you know, Joe D'Augusta, who is the casting director on the original Star Trek. I, I don't know when this airs, but like we just did Merv Block who is the marketing guy behind the Star Trek, the motion picture advertising campaign. But more than that, I mean, he did Paramount films through the seventies and early eighties, and then was doing United artist movies all through the, um, the, the sixties and uh, amazing. Like that stuff to me is stuff that gets me excited. I love that. You know, and you can tell, you know, when we're not talking about uh, uh, nonsense, how excited I get, uh, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, sort of these unsung heroes, of, of cinema and, and genre, you know, who, who were, you know, sort of behind the scenes people. I mean, you know, one of my favorite interviews was, you know, Eddie Egan, who was the, like the unit publicist on, uh, you know, Star Trek two, three, four. And, um, you know, he just has amazing stories. And I, I continue to be amazed after all the scholarship we've all done on Star Trek and particularly Star Trek two, you know, how much keeps, you know, coming out about it. Like, you know, when we, we did the whole thing about, you know, Khan's baby in Star Trek two and, you know, the lost footage and, you know, what that was, which was just insane. Um, you know, you know, talking to Eddie and talking to some other people about that. Um, it's great. And I, I hadn't known much about Khan's baby, you know, until recently. And, you know, I'm probably one of the most well-versed people in the history of Star Trek that walks on the planet. And <laughs> you know, even I didn't really know much about it. So um, I love that when we can sort of do Trek archeology span and discover things that we didn't know uh, about, um, you know, our favorite franchise. So I don't know about Khan's baby. Can you tell yeah, me? Well, <laughs> yeah, in, in the script, Chekhov and Terrell, you know, find in all these cargo containers, they find like a nursery and uh, they, 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 they find a baby that was Marla MacGyver and Khan's baby. But the, the but that was never shot because they were going to have to build all this stuff. But what they did shoot, in, in, at the end, on the transporter pad of um, the Reliant, uh, when the, the Genesis um, uh, device is on a countdown to detonation, they, a baby crawling towards the Genesis device, uh, which was Khan's baby. And it would have been an enormous misstep of galactic proportions mm -hmm. had that stayed in the movie. And, you know, all the times we've all talked to Nick Meyer, I don't think anyone's really talked to him about this crazy <laughs> plot about... Khan's baby and um you know the, the you know the only vestige of it is there's um there's a photo that ran in one of those sci-fi cash-in magazines because the studio killed it when it was clear that it was cut from the movie but Eddie Egan points out that all the art from all the Star Trek movies would go to Lincoln Enterprises to Majel so Majel gave out that photo to somebody and it ran and that's the reason why there's this photo of the baby on the transporter pad like you know sort of crawling towards the Genesis device I mean, it's insane. Where are you in 
production and have you had a chance to talk to Nick yet for the movie? No, we haven't talked to Nick yet for the movie, but we will be, you know, obviously talking to him and Bob Salon and everyone who's, you know, still alive. And then, you know, some archival stuff. I mean, Star Trek Two is clearly going to be a big part of the documentary because, you know, it's not just me. It's also Roger Lay Jr., who's the other producer and the director who did all that amazing Star Trek supplemental material on the Next Generation Enterprise Blu-rays and the Roddenberry Vault. So he also is a Trek enthusiast, as is Scott Mance, who is another producer on it. So Star Trek's going to be a big a big part of it. So, you know, we, we, we want to basically go down a lot of the roads not taken, things you don't know, because, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, just the same stories that get told again and again. It's like when you hear Nick Meyer saying, yes, that's really Ricardo Montalban's chest. It's like, if I hear that story one more time, I'm going to shoot myself. So um, I, I just feel like, you know, there's so many great stories that people don't talk about that are so interesting. And, you know, like we've all talked to Bob Salen and he's a fascinating guy. And for years, nobody really talked to him or knew who he was or cared. And then, you know, all, all of a sudden the last five years, he's gotten very gregarious and, uh, you know, he's such a lovely guy. And, you know, he, uh, you know, next to Nick Meyer, you know, probably had more to do with the success of that movie than virtually anyone else. You could argue, you know, Harv did because he put together this incredible team and had the foresight to watch all 79 episodes and, and try and figure out what it was about Star Trek that worked. I mean, he cracked the code. But then, you know, he sort of went away to do Woman Called Golda and, you know, his TV projects. And it was left, you know, to Bob Salon to sort of produce the movie for no money. You know, I mean, it was produced under the aegis of the TV division. So, I mean, it's incredible that that movie looks as good as it does and came out as good as it did you know, given all the constraints on it. Yeah. I talked to him last year, which was the first time I ever talked to him and it was, you know, fascinating. And, and what was, you know, like you were saying, a lot of fans when they read, like I never even noticed, you know, I mean, his name's there in the credits, but people kind of think of Harv and Nick and kind of just forgot about him. Yeah. Because, you know, Harv, uh, you know, as much as he hated Gene, he had a lot in common with Gene. He was a really great showman. He knew how to sell himself, you know, and, and, and I don't, I say that with envy, not with, with any <laughs> kind of, you know, disgust. I mean, they were both really great ringmasters. So Harv definitely sold himself as the man who saved Star Trek and, you know, the guy who came in and, you know, rescued the beach whale and, and, you know, good, more power to him. He was a very smart guy and he brought a lot to that franchise. I mean, he, in a way he was the man who saved Star Trek, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people who, you know, were part of the DNA of these things got overlooked. You know, people like Ralph Winter, who didn't get the credit they deserved, Bob Salen, you know, because Harv took up all the oxygen in the room, which in no way diminishes Harv. I mean, it was the same thing that happened with Gene. You know, no one can take away from Gene, who was, you know, a genius and, um, you know, conceived of this, uh, of Star Trek and basically assured, you know, the quality and didn't fall into a lot of the sci-fi tropes that people like Irwin Allen were falling into at the time. But at the same time, you know, people like Gene Kuhn and, uh, you know, a lot of the others were overshadowed by the, the myth, the legend of, uh, of Gene Roddenberry. So who else from Star Trek two do you hope to talk to? From Star Trek two? Well, I mean, look, obviously I hope to talk to Bill. Um, you know, Bill's always, you know, a challenge because if it's not something that he's promoting, uh, you know, I don't know, but, you know, obviously I have a great relationship with him going back to free enterprise and I consider him a friend. Uh, so I, I certainly hope that, you know, he'll participate. 
Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be be talking to, I'd like to talk to, you know, even though Ralph Winter was really only involved in post-production on that, he has a lot of great stories about Star Trek too. And then, you know, look, we'll talk to the cast, but I can tell you what they're going to say before I even talk to them. You know, um, they've told these stories so many times. Um, and, I, you know, I, I want to talk to, you know, a couple of the executives at the studio, you know, obviously Karen Moore, who greenlit the picture uh, or introduced Nick to, to, to Harv. Um, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, it's the same thing I did when we did 50 year mission, when Ed and I wrote our oral history of Star Trek. Um, you know, we, we did a deeper dive into the people that, you know, people don't normally talk to. Like one of the revelations in that book on Star Trek, the Star Trek two chapter was Deborah Arakalian, who was, you know, Harv and Bob's assistant. And she had amazing stories, you know, that no one had ever heard before. So, you know, it, like I said, it, 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 to me, writing or in this case doing a documentary which involves trek it's archaeology you're kind of like indiana jones and you got to chip away at everything because you know it gets to the point where so many people tell the same stories over and over again that's a game of telephone they repeat them so many times the stories they tell at the conventions bear no resemblance to the reality you know it's it's again it's kind of myth making or it's like they don't even remember but they remember the story they told in des moines last week so um you know, it's really getting to the bottom of what really, you know, of what really happened. And, you know, that's what we're going to try and do with the documentary. But, you know, in the way that my books, The 50 Year Mission, were influenced by um, things like I Want My MTV, which was a great oral history of MTV that was sort of insightful and sentimental and gonzo and wacky and sad and tragic all at the same time, which is why I ended up doing 50 Year Mission in that same oral history format. You know, with this documentary, I look at something like Electric Boogaloo or The Kid Stays in the Picture that are both informative and in-depth, but at the same time, they're a little gonzo and crazy and, you know, wacky. And, and that's what I, I kind of want this documentary to be as well. And, um, you know, the good news is, is that, you know, we, you know, for people who make a donation, we're going to be having matching funds. So, for you know, matching stuff every dollar for dollar. Um so um, I'm, you know, very, very excited that, you know, for the next two weeks, we have the Kickstarter going on with some fantastic rewards. But, you know, I'm confident that the documentary is is going to move forward and it's going to be awesome because it has to be out next year for the anniversary. <laughs> I wanted to ask you because, uh, you know, having read 50 Year Mission and it's and there is so much stuff in there that isn't anywhere else. And then what you're planning for this, like, how do you get these people to tell you the stories that are are untold? Well, it's all Ed. People like Ed, you know, and they're willing to they're willing to talk to him. Uh, uh, yeah, but now you know, I mean, the thing about and I've told this story about the 50 year mission. You know, the 50th anniversary was coming up, and Ed Gross came to me and he said, you know, we got to write. Uh, you know, we should do something for the 50th, and I kept saying no because you know I really was you know it's been a long time since I've done journalism and I was really busy with my TV shows and everything and. I was kind of felt like I had everything to say and that, you know, I, if we couldn't write the greatest book ever written about Star Trek, I didn't want to do it because I, I didn't want to write the third greatest book ever about Star Trek. So that's when I read, I, I want my MTV. And then I read live from New York, Tom Shale's book about the history of Sarah live. And it's funny because then I called up Ed and I said, you know, I know you really want to do this. And I said, I'll consider it. I said, if, if we do it in this oral history format, we, we you know, talked to our editor and if we can get a good deal, I said, I, I'll, I'll do it. But I was sure there was no way she'd be able to get a good deal and we'd have it coming. So he goes to her immediately and says, Mark's in. And then she sells <laughs> the book the next day and it was a very good deal. And then I was stuck writing this thing. 
So then I was like, okay, Ed, we got to, um, I said, now how do we make this the greatest book ever written about Star Trek? Uh, because, you know, and, and, you know, it really was about um, talking to people and getting stories that they hadn't told before. And um, I think, you know, I think it helped that a lot of these people, either he or I had interviewed before, or we knew um, in my case, he likes to do interviews by phone. Um, I tend to like to take people out to lunch or dinner or, or drinks. And what tends to happen is the interview goes on and they give me the standard stuff, but then we're still stuck eating. So it keeps going and they keep drinking. And then they start telling me more, more and more stories that they hadn't planned on telling me. And that's when I get the good stuff. Uh, you know, and Ed just really puts people at ease. And he's such a wonderful writer and such a great guy that, you know, people just are really comfortable around him. And, um, and you know, he's been doing it for so long. I mean, I met Ed because of Star Trek. I mean, he called me probably in the late 80s, early 90s when I had written something for Cinefantastic and asked if he could republish something of mine. And, and he said all the right things. I'm a big fan of yours. And <laughs> uh, I said, okay. And I let him publish it. And we ended up becoming very good friends and, we're, you know, working together on a bunch of stuff. And I was a big fan of his, to be honest. And, um, and so uh, it, it worked out very nicely for both of us. And, you know, I'm really proud of those books. And then, of course, it led to a couple other books like um, the Buffy book and, and the Galactica book, which I really love, and especially the James Bond book. And then, you know, next month, July, we have Secrets of the Force coming out, which is an oral history of Star Wars. The difference with that, and I think it's a terrific book, but the difference is when we did the Star Trek book, the manuscript was so long that we called our editor and we said, um, you know, it, it's so long, it's going to have to be two books to cover <laughs> the whole franchise well. And he said he was very, he, 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 he was very reluctant. He, you know, he said, I'll be the judge of that. Send me the manuscript. And then like that Monday, we got an email that said, it's two books. <laughs> so that was like, it was, it never been set out to be two books. It was always supposed to be one book. And, um, and so it ended up being two books. And uh, with Star Wars, we, we tried kind of the same gambit. We didn't go, you know, and they were like, no, it has to be one book because we're selling it as the complete saga in one book. So, and it was all, you know, so we had to cut a bunch out of it, which doesn't mean the book isn't terrific, but it's just like we lost a lot of stuff that were in the original manuscript, whereas Star Trek, basically, we, we were able to keep everything. And, you know, um, and I'm really, I'm really glad because I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm all kidding aside, I'm, I'm really proud of both those books of uh, 50 year mission and 50 year mission the next 25 years. You know, I just feel like, uh, you know, and it was also the culmination of a career writing about Star Trek, because, of course, early in my entertainment journalism career, you know, I was writing about Star Trek literally since high school and certainly in college. And um, when I got out of college and my first trip to, you know, or my second trip to California was to go to the set of. Uh, too short a season, the first season of the next generation. Um, so I've been writing about Star Trek for a long time and it was wonderful and super gratifying to finally put a lot of this material together in kind of one place because for us, we re we went back to our archives for a lot of people who passed away that you know we wouldn't have had access to. I mean, one of the greatest things was we were close to finishing the book and I was working on a next generation chapter and I said, God, I, I only wish we had an interview with Bert Armas Bert Armis was a producer on the first season or second season of, of Next Gen. And Ed said, you know, I think I interviewed him, and I don't think I ever even used it for anything. Oh. And he went down, we call his basement the TARDIS, because whenever <laughs> he goes down there, he finds whatever he's looking for. So he says, let me go down to the TARDIS. And he goes down, 
And he calls me a couple hours later. He says, you're not going to believe it. I found a micro cassette with a, a two-hour interview with Bert Armis. And I'm like, that's amazing. Oh now how are you going to describe it? And, uh, and, 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 and so that's kind of stuff happened all the time. But we like to joke. We were like the angels of death. Every time we talked to somebody, people would die. I mean, so many people involved in Star Trek died during the writing of that book. And it's happened with every book we did. That we, you know, When we did the James Bond book, we were, it was the angels of death again. Every time we talked to somebody, they pass away. Or so, you know, somebody we were trying to get, like Lewis Gilbert, like died right when we were negotiating the time we were going to talk to him. Or, you know, Yafet Kodo or, you know, uh, just, it's just, um, it's um, uh, unbelievable. So I, the I, Star I, I, Wars I people should be very careful? They should be worried. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, you know, a couple people died uh, during uh, that book, too. So. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, well, let's, I mean, you, you are doing another thing that I wanted to talk about that could get into this, these same issues, which is the history channel documentary called the center seat. Um, first of all, you know, what's your involvement? You're, you're listed executive producer. What, what are you doing for this new show? I think it's going to be terrific. Uh, I don't know how much I can really say about it. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I produced with the uh, Brian Volkweiss over at Nacelle, um, uh, a history of star Trek for the 50th, uh, documentary it was two hours brian's a huge star trek fan um he sold uh this you know he does the, the toys that made us and the movies that made us and he represents a lot of huge comedic talent like kevin hart and, um so he's but at his heart he's a huge star trek fan so I, he sold this and you know he called me up and uh you know uh, he said you know he sold this he was doing this documentary and you know would i consult and you know, I said, look, I'm really busy and, you know, I don't know how much help I could really be. And he said, look, you know, we don't want, need you to do much. We just kind of need you to consult and where necessary, put us in touch or, or vouch for us and, you know, maybe give some notes and some cuts and things. And I said, okay, that, you know, that's fine. But, but I, I you know, I would be lying if I said that I am, you know, deeply involved on a day-to-day uh, basis. I, I, I think it's going to be great. I mean, obviously I was interviewed at length for the, um, for the documentary. I know, you know, they talked to hundreds of people. Uh, um, I think that, you know, Ian Romain, who's like the, the, the day-to-day producer on that, uh, is doing a great job. I, he, you know, he's a, a diehard Star Trek fan. So, you know, I think it's going to be really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Do you know the scope of it? Like, does it go all the way to, you know, the latest shows or is it? No, it, it, it starts with the uh, original uh, and then it ends with Enterprise. Oh, okay. So no. JJ, Again, I don't no... even know if I'm supposed to be talking about it, but what do I care, sir? <laughs> yeah, so, so no JJ, no CBS no. All Access. And it, which course. doesn't mean that you know. I think also because they've had such success with Toys That Made Us, we, you know, I think they want to leave the possibility of revisiting those things in the future. Would be my guess. And again, I'm right. not saying that from insider information. I haven't really talked about it. Um, but, uh, but I, I, look, I just, knowing who they talk to and knowing the kinds of question I, I mean, it was the first thing after I got vaccinated that I did was go to do the interview for this, uh, um, for this documentary. And I think I was there like six hours and I, and I was exhausted because, you know, I hadn't really been getting out much and <laughs> and I, I get up, you know, and it was, it was a hike. I had to go up to the Valley, which I never like to do. And, um, and it was, um, and I was there like six hours. So they, you know, they, it's a deep, it's a pretty deep dive um, into this material. 
And, you know, again, I know they've talked to, um, you know, a lot of, you know, obviously people you would expect them to talk to, but then sort of more uh, esoteric names as well. And uh, I think it's going to be terrific. I think, you know, what I love about the fact that they're doing is it's not a two hour documentary. Like I know when we did our history channel on, we were really limited. Plus there was also, you know, for the mainstream, you know, certain things you had to hit that were pretty obvious. Um, but, you know, because it's going to be a multi-part show, they can really get into a lot more detail than they could in like, you know, a shorter documentary. So I think it, you know, could be really, really good. I, I hope so. I know that the previous one for history, they really wanted it to appeal to sort of the person who doesn't know that much about Star Trek yeah. as well as the experts. That was the big thing with that one. It was like, oh, you know, you got it. It was like Trek 101, you know, Trek for dummies. So you could sneak in some stuff. But yeah, it had to be like somebody who just had a passing interest in it. I think this because by the nature of the fact that it's a multi-part uh, thing, I think it's going to go into a lot more detail. And I, I do feel, I, I think, and again, I, I don't want to give away things that I shouldn't be giving away, but there will be expanded versions that will then air in a, you know, um, you know, that they come out. But again, this is all stuff for Brian to announce. I don't really want to get ahead of it because again, I'm not right. super involved. I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I've consulted and, you know, I'm, I, it has my stamp of approval, but I, you know, I'm not really that involved in a day-to-day a, a -day basis, nor did I want to be. So, um, but I think it's going to be very good. I'm very excited about it. And like I said, you know, uh, there are a lot of things out there that by people that don't really love this, that just want to capitalize on the phenomena. And uh, this is being made by people who really love Star Trek. So that's uh, obviously encouraging. And plus there's another one coming out. I don't know if you know about this one. Uh, uh, Reels Channel is doing a show about classic series. I was interviewed for them recently for uh, an episode and they're doing um, a Star Trek documentary. Um, so uh, that also uh, should be very interesting. I guess that's going to premiere this fall. We're kind of in this weird golden age I think you, because of all the streaming services, there's just so many documentaries and docu-series, some of which are really great. I don't know if you had a chance to see the Nichelle Nichols one. It's fantastic. No, I haven't uh, seen it. Oh, it's um, great. Yeah, but is it is it are people now pushing against an open door for pitching documentaries and getting back to your 1982 documentary? What's your plan for distribution? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. It's exactly what you said. There is so a much bigger market for documentaries than there ever has been because of streaming. And so, um, and, and I think particularly because in the case of 1982, we're focusing on movies. So potentially it is uh, um, promoting a library. Uh, you know, so if a streamer, for instance, is airing it, they have a lot of those films in their library. So it's almost like a commercial for those. So, it, you know, it, it's great. Our, our plan is actually to take it on the festival circuit because we'd love to have a limited theatrical and then have it go to home video and streaming. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. It also depends on when we finish it because, um, we start, uh, uh you know, um, in early July and then we have a very, um, abbreviated post window in order to get it on the festival circuit for the beginning of next year, uh, to, so that it comes out next year to capitalize on the 40th anniversary of 1982. Let's talk a little bit about your podcast, which is, a fantastic Star Trek podcast. Yeah, I just listened to the one with Joe, with Joe D'Agosta. It was fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, look, we started that as a lark because we had been doing uh, the 430 movie, um, which was fun and continues to be a lot of fun. 
where we curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. And I don't know if it was Darren or me who said, you know, it'd be fun to talk about, to do a Star Trek podcast. I really thought it would be a limited thing. We do maybe for a couple of months and move on. And, you know, now we're, we're going into our fourth season. We do, you know, we've been doing one a week and then we added, I don't know why we did this, Trexpert's Briefing Room, which is where we create audio commentaries. <laughs> and uh, and so now we have two, two episodes a, a week and it's insane. I mean, it's like, I, when I went off to go do uh, Pandora in Europe, I mean, it's like we had to record so many episodes in advance because I, you know, obviously didn't have time to record the podcast when I'm off doing a TV show. I mean, so I had to like be three months ahead, you know, on, on episodes and it was freaking brutal. But I, you know, the thing is, and I keep saying I'm done and, 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 you know, um, I decided that I want to go five seasons, you know, five year mission. So I, I and, and then we've been grooming, you know, sort of replacement hosts who come in and do guest hosting. So Peter Holmstrom and Elisa Klink have been guest hosting a couple episodes and they've done a really nice job. So like, um, it's my hope after five years that either Darren will continue with a new host or we'll bring Peter and Lisa in or something. But uh, I'm just amazed that we still find topics to do. And like, so we, you know, we did uh, Joe Dugusta last week and this week's Murph Block. And I think coming up the week after that, we're doing, um, this is a great episode where it's me and, and uh, Darren and Ashley Miller who wrote Thor and X-Men First Class. And we're going through all of Gene Ronberry's notes uh, to Hart Bennett on Star Trek Three, and then the studio. <laughs> and uh, it's it's really uh, fantastic. And I, I, you know, it went like four hours. I think we're dividing it into two episodes because it's like the Ten Commandments of episodes. And um, uh, you know, and it's just and it, it's great because um, uh, you know, so it, it, look, a lot of the people that, that that we talk to, you know, I know and. I, I like, and it's great to have them on the show, but the opportunity, you know, like the Bob Salen thing was really special. Joe, Joe D'Augusta was, um, was really special. You know, when we talked to yeah. Andrea Kindred, who is Gene Kuhn's mm-hmm. uh, assistant. I mean, there, there, there's just some that give me so much joy uh, because like for a fifth year mission, Ed interviews uh, Andrea. So I'd never, never talked to her. Um, so it was so great to, 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 you know, have the chance to speak to her and hear, you know, firsthand what it was like, to work at Desilu, you know, for Gene on the series. And, um, uh, you know, it's been a very eclectic thing. And in a way, the pandemic has helped a little bit because we always recorded in the studio. And so that limited us to guests who were local and who wanted to come to the studio. Whereas now we were able to get a lot of people like John Poville, who's up in Canada, and, you know, Andrea, who's, you know, some, you know, across the ocean. And, and it really has been terrific because it's opened up We've done a lot more guests, uh, as, and, and it's interesting because the audience really loves where we sit around and BS about Star Trek, and and then you know then and then the audience really likes the interviews. So it's finding the balance between us sitting and BSing about Star Trek, uh, what we you know, and we really try and make it about the things we love, you know, because it's a, it's a direct response to the internet, um, because the internet's so negative and people are so. Um, you know, they just thrive on hate that we really try and focus on extolling what we love about Star Trek and talking about the things we love rather than sort of bagging on things. So even when we're, 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 we're um, making fun of something like Star Trek three, we kind of do it with love, you know, um, rather than, you know, sheer negativity because life's too short and I don't really need to spend time, you know, on a, a podcast sort of, to be negative. It just, what was the point? You know, it's like, 
I, you know, I really wanted to talk about things that, you know, that, 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 inspi that inspired us as kids, that continue to inspire us as adults, that, uh, that, you know, we enjoy. And, you know, one of the things that's kept me doing this for so long is the response of the audience, that we're clearly the show means so much to them. And, 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 you know, I enjoy the fact that, you know, it means so much to them and that, uh, they get so much joy out of it. And, and I have to say that, you know, a lot of these guests that we talked to, like Merv Block this week, who did the Star Trek, the motion picture campaign, you know, it, it, it's fantastic. And, you know, and we talked about Eddie Egan and Tom Perry, and we did a bunch of episodes on Star Trek, the motion picture and, and, uh, you know, and we do weird stuff like, the, you know, we did a whole episode on the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture and Darren being a master of voices, um, you know, did excerpts from, <laughs> yes. from it in the voice of the characters and it's extraordinary. And so, uh, and then when he, you know, does his Gene Roddenberry voice, I mean, I, I, I'll never forget, you know, when Michael Dorn was on the show and he started, you know, uh, talking in the voice of Gene Roddenberry, I mean, Michael just like was dying. I mean, like, you know, and, and, uh, so it, it's super, it's super fun. And we've had a great mix of like high profile guests like Anson Mount and Michael and then our visitor and, uh, you know, and Nick Myron, but, you know, with the more esoteric, uh, you know, below the line people that, uh, uh, people wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, think of, and they tend to be, you know, obviously, you know, really, really great and fascinating, you know, guests. And even when we do Trexpert's briefing room, it's interesting because I work really hard to get all these great guests. Like we did Bride of Chaotica with Brian Fuller this week. You know, he came on to talk about that. I just then, listened know, to that had, one. Yeah, it's great. And he's, you know, he, he's, he's, has great stories and, you know, he's super candid, which is always fun to have in a guest. And, um, you know, we had uh, my uh, JC Brandy come on who played Marta and Tapestry. And, you know, we had uh, Michael Sussman talk about it in Murder Darkly. And, but, you know, then you get and Brannon, you know, talked about cause and effect and Dave Rossi and Requiem from Methuselah. But it's like funny because then people say, oh, when you and Darren were just bullshitting about Spock's brain, that's like my favorite episode. And I'm like, do you know how hard I work to get these guests? I don't want to hear your favorite episodes or when it's just Darren and I. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, you know, I, 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 you know we, we get all these guests and I want you to focus on that. But uh, so it's really funny. And, um, you know, I think that with, um, you know, with the main podcast, with the Inglorious Trexperts, um, it's a nice mix between when we're just doing, um, you know, regular episodes where it'd be like, oh, the essential Kirk episodes or the essential Picard or whatever. And, um, you know, then when we do, you know, these deep dives, you know, because like, for instance, like two weeks ago, I mean, this is a bizarre episode. We talked to a burlesque performer, Hazel Honeysuckle, who's doing um, a book of, of sort of Star Trek cheesecake photos. And then, you know, the week before that, we had Larry Nemechek on to talk about the ultimate fantasy convention, uh, you know, in Houston, that was a complete disaster, which was a, a super fun, you know, episode. And then like, you know, before that we did, um, we just did the mailbag for an hour, which was insane because we get all these, you know, all these, uh, these posts, we just talk about, you know, what people are saying about the show. And it's, it's so funny because, um, uh, you know, we have a bunch of people that always get upset about politics, uh, because we got a bunch of right-wing conservative nutballs who always get upset when I talk about their fear of, being an ass and um it, it, it's just so funny to hear um you know the feedback the people are so you know passionate but we did a big thing on con's baby and uh, i mean and then you know we had somebody like robin curtis and you say what's she gonna say that she hasn't said before and she was wonderful and she was yeah. delightful and had all these great stories and just so um goofy and fun and um uh you know it's just so 
you know, we, we, we tend to find joy in doing the show. So every time I get like, why are we putting all this time into doing this for character show? Um, you know, then, then I'm like, oh my God, that episode was amazing. When, when I've talked to this guy, Merv Block about, you know, Orson Welles recording Star Trek, the motion picture trailers, or, you know, Manny Cotto about enterprise, or, you know, uh, we did an episode on the politics of Star Trek, you know, with the, uh, where we had a conservative and a liberal, you know, talking about, you know, their perceptions of Star Trek, which is, and you know, like Ralph Sinatsky and, um, I mean, we even did it, you know, is the third season as bad as people say it is. And, um, you know, so it's really been fun. Let me ask you this about guests, since you're sort of looking at, you know, long term, you're planning an exit. Um, who do you really want to get on there before that happens? Who would you? Like oh, that's to speak funny. To? Yeah, look, I, I mean, you know, when people ask me that, it's always the same answer. It's always Bill. You know, and I know Bill hates to do podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, but I, I, you know, I'd like to have I'd like to have Bill on, um, you know, because he's the, the best. Um, and, uh, you know, just an extraordinary guy, an extraordinary actor and, uh, you know, just this legendary character. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so I'd like to, you know, like he'd be great for my final episode. Like I'd love to, (laughs) when I do my, my swan song, um, I'd like to, like to have Bill. I mean, you know, there are a couple other people too. Um, you know, Rick Berman is somebody I'd really like to have. And I talked to Rick about doing the show and, you know, I know he's writing his memoirs now and he sort of hemmed and hawed. And I think it's, you know, he, he, he didn't say no, but he didn't say yes. And, um, I just feel like, um, you know, Rick has allowed other people to sort of define him over the years. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to do a multi-part episode with him, uh, because, um, you know, whether you love Rick or not, I mean, he made that show and it, it exists, you know, it, it succeeded and it lasted for as long as it did because of Rick. And you can quibble with some of the decisions he made, but, you know, what he did, um, you know, was extraordinary. And, and you know, he's up there with like those, the amount of hours of television he did, and the amount of spinoffs he did, you know, he's up there with people like Quinn Martin and Leonard Goldberg and, you know, Aaron and, and, you know, some of these Dick Wolf, I mean, and he doesn't get the, the attention that he deserves. And I know, you know, he's pretty much retired now and I don't blame him considering the amount of money that he made on these shows and these movies. Um, but I, I would love to have um, Rick come in, and, you know, and, and having, you know, for the last 10, 15 years producing TV, you know, I have a much deeper appreciation for what he achieved and, uh, uh, um, you know, over his tenure than perhaps I did when I was young and, uh, and uh, more, um, more of a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've, you know, we're, we're out of time. So I just want to ask you one crazy open-ended question, which is, you know, you're an industry professional, an obvious observer of the film industry. One of the things that's definitely been in flux in the last few years is the Star Trek film franchise. Sure. So, you know, let's say that Emma Watts called you up and said, okay, Mark, what should I do? Yeah, that's a good question. I would definitely have a good answer for her, too. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I think that, um, look, I, I, I think we all have um, ideas what we would do with the uh, franchise, both on television and movies. And I, I think the sky's the limit. I think there's so many opportunities with this franchise because at its heart, it is a show about optimism that extols um, hope 
and is about uh, um, uh, appreciating science and appreciating diversity and acceptance of people that are different than us. And, um, uh, you know, so much that's baked into the DNA of Star Trek uh, is, uh, you know, the kind of world we want to live in. But that doesn't negate great drama and great character interaction. And, um, you know, I think these are all elements that are at the um, at the heart of Star Trek that need to be um, brought back to Star Trek, that, that need to be um, uh, part of Star Trek uh, going forward. I think that, you know, unfortunately, you know, the, some of the lessons of the movie franchise are, are lost. And I think if you go back and look at why Star Trek II was such a success, um, it's not about it being a, a, a left turn from the motion picture, because a lot of us love the motion picture uh, dearly. But um, it's about Hart Bennett sitting down and saying, what was it about those 79 episodes that are so special that resonate? It's about Nick Meyer going back and saying, hey, this show is Horatio Hornblower. And, you know, and going back and saying, you know, uh, looking at it's Charles Dickens, it's Shakespeare, it's Horatio Hornblower. Um, and, and, and going back to what inspired Gene Roddenberry. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're smart and you understand uh, the components that make Star Trek work, it's not that hard to build a, a Star Trek that has a tremendous appeal and lasting value um, and uh, that is, is true to what we all love about Star Trek. And, you know, look, I will say this. I think it's important that Star Trek doesn't become greatest hits. You know, when you go to a concert for an old band, you always want to see them play the hits and you don't want to see them play the new album. But, you know, the bands that endure, are, you know, are the bands that are creating you know, new music. They're, you know, are, 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 are taking risks and trying new things and not just, um, you know, coasting on their greatest hits. Uh, you know, there, there was a danger for a long time with the Star Wars franchise. I mean, you look at, you know, something like Rise of Skywalker, which is um, basically Mad Libs, you know, of, 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 of Star Wars moments. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, where does, where does it really, you know, where is it really working? You know, something like Mandalorian, which, you know, uh, has elements uh, of the Star Wars we love, but are, you know, moving the franchise forward, I think that resonate the most, you know, for fans. And I think, you know, Star Trek can take a page from, you know, Star Wars. I think when Star Wars, you know, does something like Force Awakens, which is like, oh, let's take something from column A and column B and just sort of do Star Wars over again, but, you know, gussy it up. It's not necessarily the most successful and it's, it's not laying the groundwork for the future. You know, it's kind of like a sugar rush. You know, that's why if you look at like Force Awakens, when Force Awakens premiered, people got really excited for a short period of time. Star Wars is back. Oh, this is great. But then when they really think about it and reflect on it, now they look back and say, oh, that movie wasn't very good. And I, I you know, I think Star Trek has to wor worry about the sugar high. Um, and, um, you know, because it needs to lay the foundation for something special um, and enduring and, you know, not only uh, satisfying the current audience, but bringing in a new audience and, um, you know, really looking at the elements that make Star Trek endure because it's amazing that this is a franchise that continues to be popular 55 years later. Uh, because of course, you know, how many shows from the sixties can you really say that about? Not many. I mean, people know the twilight zone, you know, people remember, I love Lucy, you know, um, they, you know, to a certain, I mean, it's amazing. You know, I think you talk to 90% people don't know what Gilligan's Island is anymore. You know, um, 
and 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 you know the shows that were the big top ten shows of the sixties. Um, you know, if somebody hadn't remade The Fugitive as a movie, nobody would remember The Fugitive. Chances are they wouldn't remember Mission Impossible, but people remember Star Trek. And, you know, why is that? That's a, that's a question that uh, we need to answer. Well, thank you so much for spending yeah, time with us. We really um, appreciate it. I could talk to you forever um, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back or maybe you could join the shuttle pod uh, crew sometime in the future. You know, uh, Brian and those guys. And uh, I, I won't go on a shuttle pod, but I will go on a <laughs> shuttle craft. So when you have a shuttle craft, you let, let me know and I'll come back. Like the Galileo 7 or the Columbia, it's totally down with that. I, I never liked the shuttle pods in Enterprise. Not a cool looking ship. Not my thing. So I don't know about the shuttle pod <laughs> thing. No, I'm kidding. I, look, Brian is fantastic. You guys are doing such a great job at Trek Movie, you know, covering the franchise and, and bringing information. You've been doing it for such a long time, too, Anthony. I mean, it dates all of us. You know, we think back to, I think you, you first came out with it before Star Trek 2009, you know, so you took something that was just like a hobby and made it into like a, like a business and like the first stop that people have in the morning to uh, uh, getting their Trek news. And I, I think that's, you know, that's amazing. So, and, uh, you know, congratulations to you and, 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 you know, you and Laurie on the podcast, because there are a lot of, a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there and there are only a few good ones. I mean, I've talked about this on my on my podcast, you know, everyone and their sister does the Star Trek podcast. And usually, you know, they have about six listeners. So, but there are a few really good ones. And of course, you know, you're, you're one of those and, and it's not easy to do a show that's interesting and compelling. And uh, uh, so, you know, kudos to you guys. Well, thank you very much. Thank you you for joining and um, we'll, we'll have you back and uh, I'll see you, you know, we'll see you in Vegas. Yay. Yeah, it sounds great. Laurie, uh, great to meet you. And um, I, I would just say, to you know, there's still a chance to support the 1982 Kickstarter. So for fans, people who are interested or so inclined, they should go to Kickstarter and check out 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever. And looking forward to meeting everybody or seeing people uh, in Vegas where, uh, you know, Adam was kind enough uh, and Gary to invite us down this year. And, and um, I haven't been to uh, Vegas in a long time. So uh, I said, uh, you know, for the 50, 55th and obviously the 50th anniversary of creation seemed like a good time to make my return engagement. And I'm looking forward to it. And we'll put a we'll put a link up to the Kickstarter on the site. Fantastic. I really well, I really appreciate it. So uh, thank you guys. And, and to be pedantic, li- uh, live long and prosper. <laughs> you too. <laughs> OK, okay Bye, take care. Bye bye. It was a pretty good interview. I just think he is such a fountain of information um, <laughs> and insights and, and a fountain that just keeps giving, keeps, keeps flowing. Um, so there's a lot to talk to. And I'm sure we'll end up talking to him again at some point, too, as this as these things get the documentary happens and all of that. But thank you, Mark. That was terrific. Indeed. So let's wrap up. With our last two, our bits of the week, our Trek bits. Uh, Tony, you have something I have not. Usually I like to have a look at what you're going to talk about, and I have not had time to do so. So what you got? Well, mine is, I try to make these Trek always. Mine is Trek adjacent because it's just Jonathan Frakes, and I love Jonathan Frakes. Who doesn't love Jonathan Frakes? Yeah. After Star Trek Next Generation, he moved on to do the show called beyond belief factor fiction, which ran on sci-fi here. It ran all around the world. And it's one of those, you know, unsolved mystery shows where he was the host. And even though it's 20 years ago, it's still popular because it's been so memed 
Like there's the collection of all of Jonathan Frakes telling you you're wrong for a minute mm-hmm. and stuff like that. He gets in on the joke. It's a lot of fun. So um, a game company that makes a very popular uh, online game called Player Unknown Battlegrounds brought Frakes back to create kind of a fake version of this show called Mysteries Unknown, where he plays a version of himself looking into the mysteries of the player unknown universe, but it's done very seriously as if it's all real. And um, so it's just worth checking out that, you know, Frakes is back in the room. They rebuilt the set. It looks exactly like it used to look. Um, And he's solving mysteries for a video game. It's great. Nice. Always happy for some extra Frakes. So what do you got? Mine is just for people who don't know about this. It's been around for a little while. But Robert Picardo, who's been having a lot of fun on YouTube doing different characters and different things. My favorite thing that he does um, is called Technobabble Alfresco. So Alfresco being out in the open air. So he goes outside. He must live somewhere that's got tons of beautiful nature around it. And he goes outside and he basically quotes passages from the doctor on Voyager that are thick with Technobabble and convoluted complicated language and he spins his camera his phone while he's doing it so that he's going around in a circle which adds this frenetic pace to everything that he does he delivers it beautifully it's like he's just come out of the episode and done the scene it's so fresh and fun and there's a great one um where he actually does the theme song to voyager and then he starts spinning the camera faster it's just (laughs) he's having so much fun he's very entertaining to watch we'll put up a link um you can explore the rest of his youtube while you're there but definitely there are 11 techno babble alfrescos and they are all worth your time he was one of the best at doing techno babble because some actors struggle with it for sure um but uh, I think he's definitely in the t- him and LeVar Burton are just really good at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they nailed it. And he always brings so much flavor to everything that he says. So it's been a lot of fun to watch. Total side note, minor bit. LeVar, first image of LeVar Burton posting, uh, we posted on Twitter this week and he retweeted it. It's the first image of him hosting Jeopardy was released. So... Uh, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. I really want him to get that gig. And I get mad when anyone talks about any of the other guest hosts being popular. I get mad. I go, <laughs> don't like them. No, they can go do it. I want, you know, he wants this so bad and I want it for him. We'll see in July how well he does. And I think that'll factor into their final decision. I worked with him a couple of times too. And he was just delightful and warm and everybody deserves to work with him. So come on, give it to him. That's it for the week. Thank you. Uh, We'll be back next week because if it's Friday, it's all access Star Trek. It is. See you next week.